Well, it's a delight to be here, and I've uh, heard all the way from Penin Hills and Dural up where we live uh, about Anchor Church a couple of times, actually. And so I was just delighted uh, when Matt contacted me to ask me to to come and and speak to you. And uh, and so um, I was asked to, as part of this series that that you're having, and I'll just try to get our little uh, thing going here, uh, to speak on this series on exegete, which of course is is analysing and understanding something. We, we analyse and we understand the word, we exegete the Bible, but we need to, in the same way, not just exegete scriptures, but exegete society, understand the context in terms of where we're living and how we're living. I was reading in Billy Graham's uh, autobiography, Just As I Am, and it had, he was talking about when he started as a famous preacher, we all know that, evangelist, and one of the newspapers, when it was writing about his ministry, they said, uh, it's as if he's preaching with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And it was an interesting description. He sort of wore that with a badge of honour. In other words, cool, you know, I, I, I teach God's unchanging word, but in a context of a society that is changing. Uh, and that's a good way to live, a good way for Christians to be. We stand on the rock of God who is unchanging from generation to generation. And yet we live in a society that is rapidly changing. And so we've got to understand how to communicate in changing times the unchanging word of God. It was, um, it was John Stott, another, uh, talking about exegesis and expository, he, um, uh, famous 20th century uh, a Christian writer and expositor, and he um, wrote a book called Contemporary Christian, and the subtitle was uh, The Word and the World. And it was that same concept that we've got to understand God's Word and how to communicate it in a changing world. It didn't begin with him, though. If we go back all the way to Chronicles, in the book of uh, First Chronicles, it's an interesting time in Israel's history. Saul is the king, but David, realizing uh, God, realizing that you know, Saul is not focused on him, God has, has uh, got Samuel to anoint David as, as king, and he hasn't yet been raised up as the king. But, but there's this potential civil war emerging because you've got Saul the king and this emerging king, and people are working out, well, who do we follow? Who do we get behind? And it goes through the people that start to get behind David. They see where God is at. And it comes to this interesting verse in First Chronicles 12.32. It talks about the people of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. And they decided to get behind David. But the only reason they knew what to do was because they understood the times. The only reason that they knew what Israel ought to do was because they understood the times and the context and the external environment in which they were operating. If we were to sum up this era in which we operate, this context, this, this area, this city of Sydney with a single word, it would have to be that word change. Although probably a more accurate definition of this particular era in the 21st century is not so much that sort of change, but that sort of change. Because it's massive change, it's constant change, it's fast change and it's transforming everything and all the more for us as believers to understand this context in which we live and interact to understand the community around us and it's changing in so many areas it's only occasionally in history that you get massive demographic shifts such as we're seeing in Sydney combined with huge social change in terms of where people live and how they live and that's combined with generational transitions as we're seeing and huge technology trends which just surround us and when these trends come together, uh, it can be so significant that within the span of a decade, society altogether alters. 
and Australia right at the moment is in the midst of one such transformative decade with these mega trends transforming our society all around us. And so all the more important for us to understand these changing times and to understand the timeless word and to see how we can be relevant in this space. This sort of overwhelming change can lead to a couple of responses. It can firstly lead to change fatigue where we get weary of the change. We get worried about change. We, we, we start to fear change. A little bit like grandma I heard about who was overwhelmed with all those buttons on the remote control and was pushing too many and sometimes messing up the programming on the TV. And it was the grandson, actually, her grandson, who managed to solve her change fatigue. And he went round and um, sorted out her problem. <laughs> Bit of masking tape was all that was required. And... Uh, he never had to go around and reprogram her TV again and she never pushed the wrong buttons. Channel change and volume, that was all that she needed. Now, that's one approach to change fatigue. We can just sort of bunker down and sort of try to limit the changes and pretend it's not existing, it's not changing, but it is changing. The other approach I see, and if older people are more on the change fatigue risk profile, younger people can be more on the change apathy profile where we're not worried about change. We're not fearful of change, we're just indifferent to it. It's just like the air we breathe. Yeah, there's change around, so what? We can become blasé about change and equally not respond to it, equally not analyse it, not understand the times because we go, oh, well, the world's changing. I'm not worried about it, but who cares? We'll just work our way through. But I think it is important to observe the changes and respond to them. Uh, there's a guy whose job was to paint the line down the side of the road and uh, unfortunately he wasn't responding to the external environment. You know, he thought his job was just to paint the line and not stop and remove fallen tree branches. Uh, we have to respond to the realities of our world. We can't be fatigued or lazy about it, apathetic. We have to respond. In fact, Paul, when he was writing in his letter to the church at Colossae, he asked, he was talking about the importance of prayer firstly, uh, at the very end of his letter in Colossians chapter 4. And he, he said this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then, so the importance of prayer, pray continually, was his, was his word. But then he went on to say this, and at the same time, and he's giving them his prayer list. He's saying, pray for us. Pray also for us, that God may open uh, uh, to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So pray that God will open the door. But then he went on to add something important, not just pray for the open door. Pray that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. We've got to pray for the open door, but also pray for clarity of the communication. We've got to pray for the open door, but pray that we will be effective in walking through that open door and connecting with the community around us. And that second part of the prayer, that we make it clear in how we ought to speak, that we can be effective in our engagement, that we can be relevant in the communication, requires us to understand the context. It requires us to understand the times. And so I want to uh, just think about Australia and Sydney specifically for uh, a little bit of time and, uh, and share some verses as we go so we can understand both the times and also the relevance of God's word and Christ in our culture. Let's think about our population. And I'd say four things about our changing city and our changing nation. Firstly, we're growing. Uh, it's amazing the growth that we see in Sydney, and particularly here living in this part of Sydney. You see it, the densification, the, the urbanisation, the population growth, the inner suburbs that were once emptying of pre people a generation ago, now becoming more densified than ever before. We're going to finish this year as a nation at 24 million people, another milestone achieved. 
which means we've doubled our population in a little over 40 years when we hit 12 million people. We're uh, over the last decade have been the fastest growing nation in the developed world. It's pretty, uh, in terms of population growth rate, it's pretty significant population growth. And one in five of our total nation lives right here in Sydney, our largest city, of course. In fact, a pretty fast growing city as well. I put up there that in the last 12 months, Sydney has grown by 86,000 people. Now, in that same period of time, just to sort of get a bit of national comparison going, Tasmania has grown by around 1,400 people. Now, I don't want to bag out other states. We, we all love Tassie, of course. But if we put that into perspective, it means that Sydney adds more people every six, day, six days and Tassie adds in a whole year. So this is, where they, this is where the growth is. They still get 12 senators for that whole, uh, whole state. They're not sure about that. But that's the reality of the growth. Crossroads are right here in our largest city and a city that is going to hit 5 million next year. In fact, you go back to 1959 when you know, Erskineville and these suburbs were really quite industrial and, and still being developed in some ways. Sydney had a population of 2 million, the first of our cities to get to 2 million since then, joined by Melbourne, Brisbane, and just last year, it might have been the year before, Perth. So we've got four cities at, at two, that have achieved a 2 million status or above. Well, as I said, we're going to hit 5 million in 2016 and uh, we're going to get to 8 million in 2055, which means in less than a century, a fourfold growth, quadrupling of growth here in this particular city. That's the growth that we see and great opportunities to connect with more people than ever before. I put down a couple of other facts while we're thinking about Sydney here. In 2053, two years before we get to 8 million, based on the current growth trends, Melbourne will actually become... Australia's largest city. It's growing at a faster rate than Sydney right at the very moment. And in the same year that we in Sydney get to 8 million, we get our fifth city making it to 2 million, and that is Adelaide. So that's, again, the difference in size across the cities. I was thinking about Melbourne taking the crown of Australia's largest city. I don't think we need to worry too much about that because we've run a lot of research of what people love about Sydney. And I love this quote we got from uh, um, Peter, who was living out in West Tregear Heights, in one of our surveys. He said, waking up each day knowing that I don't live in Melbourne lifts my mood on an almost daily basis. I'm sure we can all relate to that. So... Uh, let them have the number one crown. This is still the best place to live. Well, if our nation is growing and our city is growing, one thing that's not growing, actually, is the church-going population. Now, if we think about the census data, we know that 61% of all people in the census in uh, 2011 ticked Christianity as the, uh, as the box on their census form. So it's by far the majority religion with which people have an identity. If you take that, you'd say that therefore it's a Christian majority country, more than half of the population identifying Christianity as their religion. Religion number two is Buddhism at 2.5%. So there's a big difference between the number one religion and number two as far as identity is concerned. In fact, all other religions combined are 7.3%. So Christianity is more than eight times larger than all the other non-Christian religions combined. So it does show the warm terrain in which we operate. And sometimes we forget this. We, we think that you know, Christianity, I mean, hardly anyone sort of identifies with Christianity these days, but actually um, you've still got warm terrain in which we operate. The majority of people in the Australian community identify their religion as Christianity. Whether they practice that, whether they're active with that or not is another question, but certainly there's warm terrain in which we operate. But one thing that's not growing 
well, that's been declining very slightly, 64% to 61% in between the, the, the last two censuses. But, but churchgoing has been declining even more significantly. If we go back four decades, and this is the percentage of the national population that attends church at least once a month, used to have about 30% in the mid-70s attending church once a month. Now we're down to 15%, so a halving of the percentage of the population that attends church in the span of a, a generation. And so from 1976 to today, four decades, we've added 10 million people to the national population, while we've lost, in the same period of time, about half a million people from the church-going population. That's the reality of it in Australia. So the population is growing, but not so the church, which means we've got to do something different in terms of connecting and engaging with our community. It's not that people have a problem with Christianity, with 61% saying, no, that's the religion I'm going to tick on the box. It's that they're just not coming to church. In fact, there's a missing group. You might have done some numbers here and thought, wow, 61% say Christianity, but only 15% go to church. What about the mega 46%? 46% of our nation is in this category. They are those who say Christianity on the census form, but don't go to church. It's, in a sense, the church that doesn't go to church. It's the congregation that doesn't go anywhere. They're open to Christian things to the extent that they even identify with it, but they're just not active. Now, I love the strategy of Paul. Uh, we read in Acts chapter 17 that the apostle Paul was stuck in Athens for a little while. He was uh, waiting for Timothy and Silas. They were going to join him. They were up in Berea. They were going to come. So while he was just hanging around waiting for them, he, he connected with his culture. He was there for some time. And we read in verse 17... So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I love that. He connected with the religious types. He connected with, I don't know if the percentages were different there, but from an Australian perspective, the 15% who go to church or identify with Christianity. And then, and then those, uh, those who weren't the Jews, those in, in Greece who were, the, who were the Greeks, who were the pagans, and they were found in the marketplace. So whether it be in the religious sanctuaries or whether it be in the marketplace, Paul's there. He wants to connect with all of them. Whether it's the 15% of churchgoers, the 46% who say Christianity, or maybe those who don't tick the box, he is there and he's in the right place to connect with the right group. The religious types, he's in the synagogue, and the pagans, he's in the marketplace, and he's connecting with them. And we read further. Uh, so Paul, he was invited to speak at the Areopagus, where the, I guess it's the theatre, I guess it's sort of a gathering in, in a space like this. And Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And you love his strategy. It's pretty straightforward. He understands their culture. He spends time in the marketplace and looking at the inscriptions and seeing what they value in the society. He understands the times and the culture and the context. He doesn't start preaching and saying, you've got to come to me, he starts by exegeting the culture and understanding them. And then what is his preaching strategy? He starts with where they are at and he goes to them rather than expecting them to come to him. Oh, I see you're religious and you've got an inscription to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you about the unknown God. I'm going to make him known. And he's the one true living God and he's the Lord Almighty. And then he gets into his sermon. But I love that approach. Understand the times, the context, the culture and connect with people. Don't be a come to person be a go-to 
person to connect with them. And so I guess that means, you know, using the technology, understanding the times, connecting in relevant ways. I was just looking at the new apps and platforms that have emerged in this decade of change, and there's many of them. And social connectivity is key. And I was just thinking that if our social network, if our social connectivity is defined not so much by these sorts of apps, but by that sort of device, then maybe a little reminder for an update. Uh, the old Teledex was, uh, was quite the thing for a little while there back in the past. It's about adapting, adjusting and being relevant. The population is growing, but the population is also changing. If we think about the mix and the makeup of our population, it's more diverse than it's ever been before. If we look at how we're growing, we're setting record births at the moment. I see some youngsters uh, here in the room, so a few of you are adding to the 300,000 births that we see annually here in Australia. And we're living longer, so births minus deaths, the natural increase, is greater than ever numerically. And yet that is only two-fifths of our growth. Three-fifths of our national population growth is coming through net overseas migration. So that cultural diversity is really what is driving the population even above the natural increase. If we take our, our population and look at how many of us was born overseas, there's been a saying one in four Australians born overseas is actually more than that, it's 27% of us born overseas. If you bring that to Sydney, it's more than a third of Sydney-siders born overseas. If you bring it to a household perspective and you look at all households that have at least one parent born overseas, nationally we're at 46%, almost half of all households in the nation. In Sydney, we're at almost two-thirds of all households in this city have at least one parent born overseas. We are very culturally diverse, a little bit like Athens back in Paul's time, and that means understanding the diversity and connecting effectively with that. Now, if we go back three decades and look at the countries of which Australians born overseas were born, they're all European countries. The top five were Europe. We had New Zealand in the top five, which we still have. The other four were, were all European countries. I've grabbed the top five for Sydney, and you can see how it's changed. England is still number one. But then the next most likely country of a Sydney side, a born outside of Australia, is China. You've got India in the top three. You've got Vietnam rounding out the top five. We're connected to our part of the world in terms of Asia now, more than ever before as a nation and as a city. In fact, we look at... Uh, the centre of population a lot. If you look at a, a city or a suburb and you look at the centre, where the centre point of the population spread, it tells you a lot about the city. And so the very centre of Sydney's population is just to the, the, uh, the, the east of, of Parramatta, the Parramatta CBD. It's on Victoria Road just near Rydalmere. And so you've got at that point as many people living west of there as east and as many people living north of there as south, but roughly you could say Parramatta is the centre of Sydney's population. So I grabbed the Parramatta white pages. Because if you look at surnames, it's a good connection with ancestry and therefore cultural identity. And traditionally in, a, in an Australian phone book, you have uh, Smith, Jones and Williams as the most dominant surnames. Let's have a look at the centre of Sydney's population and the phone book currently. You've got Patel, the most common surname in the Parramatta phone book at the moment, uh, an Indian ancestry, you've got Lee with a Chinese ancestry, then you've got an Anglo-Smith, you've got Kim with a Korean connection, Singh with an Indian connection, Chen, Wang, Lee and Jang with a Chinese connection before we're back to an Anglo surname as number 10. Where the centre of population goes, so the city goes, where Sydney goes, Australia goes, this highlights the cultural diversity that defines us and the opportunities that we have to connect with people from so many countries and cultures that we, chances are won't get to connect with in those specific countries themselves. You know, we 
took the census data and that question of which religion do you identify with and then matched that against the people answering the question and the countries in which they are from. So the average Australian, 61%, as we saw, say Christianity. But if you look at the countries from which people were born and, and are most likely to say Christianity in the census, you've got people, Australians, born in, in Southern Europe. 85% of an Australian born in Southern Europe says Christianity. And then you've got Western Europe, Oceania, and America. I looked at the cultures that have the least likelihood uh, living in Australia on the census form to tick the Christianity box. And they are those who have come from Central Asia, North Asia, Africa, and, and Southeast Asia. Now, what is our migration pattern? It's no longer that left-hand column, it's the right-hand column. And so what an opportunity the church has and Christians have in this city and in this nation to connect with people from countries that we can't go to and preach the gospel where it's not feasible for us to go or it's just against the law for people to change their religion in some of these countries or for the gospel to be proclaimed. But here they come to our nation and what an opportunity living in this area to connect with the diversity that defines our city and to connect with the diversity that is the heart of God. I love God's heart for the nations. I love God's heart, we said, from cover to cover for the diversity. And we know one day, as we stand in heaven, we have a, uh, a forecast of it in Revelation 5, verse 9, that there will be people from all of the nations there. We can all be futurists. We all know what the ending of the book is. Uh, we can all read Revelation. In Revelation 5, verse 9, you have the living creatures and the elders are all around the throne of Jesus Christ, and they are singing this song, Worthy are you, the Lamb of God, Jesus to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and that's God's love for the nations and that's Jesus death for the people of all nations and we get them in this city and culture to connect with them and to share the love of the lamb who died for them what an opportunity that we have and I guess what it means is Sydney is a global city and we are globally connected with the rest of the world with great opportunities. I was thinking particularly about so many of you being in part of the younger generation. You're part of the global generation more than any preceding generation. You're globally connected through technology, but just through connections that you have with people in this diverse era. And I was thinking about scary symbols for a global generation. You know, it's not so much words that connect globally, it's symbols and technologies. And um, that uh, up here, this, uh, this one here is probably a pretty scary symbol right around the world now for an emerging generation because if you can't get Wi-Fi connection, that's a problem. That's, that's probably a scary symbol as well because if you have to wait more than two and a half seconds, that's, that's really annoying. Probably the scariest symbol of all though is that one because if the battery comes to an end and life as we know it comes to an end. So thought I'd highlight that for a global generation. So we're diverse, we're changing, we're growing. We're also, as a population, aging. You know, if we go back three decades and think about how our population looked, you had more younger people down the bottom and fewer older people up the top, and, and now our population profile is no longer called a population pyramid because it doesn't have that pyramid shape. And in three decades' time, it's going to look more like this. People are living longer. People are uh, active later. We've got an opportunity to connect with people across the age ranges more than ever before. We've got more older people than ever before and more opportunities for them to engage in community. They're looking for community and connection more than ever before. More even distribution across the age range, more generational diversity along with the cultural diversity than ever. The church has to respond to this but also ensure that 
it doesn't just age but can connect with the next generation as well. You know, the median age of an Australian, if you take 15s and overs for a moment, the average age of, therefore, almost an adult Australian is 43. If you take churchgoers age 15 and over, just so we can compare like with like here, the average age of someone 15 and over in the population, 43, and in the church, 53. So the church is actually ageing faster than the population is. In fact, across the national population, about uh, a quarter of the total population are aged over 60, but in the church, it's 44% aged over 60. So the church is aging, and yet we need to make sure we connect with the older cohort that is growing, but also with the younger cohort. And as I see here, you're very connected with the younger generation, which is important and key. If you look at the National Church Life Survey data, they track the age at which people who are sitting in the pews of a church got saved. That's an interesting thing to find out. When did most people get saved? And if you look at the data on that, you see where it takes place. I just took the the data from evangelical Protestant churches, um, and and here are the results. And uh, and you can see there that uh, uh, four in five were saved before the age of 20. It's what we see here in Australia. Most people are responding in their younger years. It's key to connect with that younger generation and it's key to connect with all of the generations, but to not just have a church that ages along with the population. Um, And this is a biblical uh, reality as well. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1 says this, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. There's a sense that there's a heart that yearns and there's a a, a mind that's searching and there's a lifestyle that's looking for more in the young years before people get set in their ways and we see that from the data of when Australians have responded to the gospel. But we've got to connect with all of the generations. We've got the growth in these older generations as you saw, the builders and the baby boomers and then you've got the family years coming through the gen x's the gen y's and then you've got generation z and generation alpha as well in fact let's just see firstly if you're in the uh, the first two builders or boomers hands up any of the builders or boomers no one's uh, at least brave enough to raise their hand or maybe not connecting as well then what about generation x uh, we'll do it by one more generation x fellow gen x's yeah we've got a few of us here fantastic gen y hands up by uh, the gen well, look at that this is a Gen Y church. And Generation Z, hands up if you're in the... Look at that, we've got some Gen Z as well. And we saw a few Gen Alphas and they're in the kids' club. So uh, that's fantastic, a big range of the generations. Well, these emerging generations really are global, with global influence and opportunity through new technologies and mobile in terms of lifestyles and where they work and how they work and live and digital in terms of the tools that they connect with and visual in terms of how information is processed and the power of the visual in this world and again I see you as a community uh, just with some of the intro clips and and what's going on here connecting very visually and social in terms of who influences people it's not just the experts it's the peer groups it's not just the authority figures it's those that they're connecting with uh, through social media or through their friendship groups sometimes the the social impact of a connected generation can be such that they need to even put up new safety signs, and I saw this one uh, recently uh, for Generation Y, in case of fire, exit building before tweeting about it. And uh, no selfies in front of the flames, it's just dangerous, make sure we, uh, we keep safe uh, in this world. Well, that's, 
that's perhaps taking things a little bit too far. Let me move to the final area, and that is a population that is moving. And I think this is why we have a society that is yearning more for community than ever, because we're moving more frequently than ever. If we look at where we're living in Sydney and in Australia, again, from the census, we know that three in four Australians still live in a detached home, and one in four are living in an, a townhouse or a, an apartment or unit. But if we look at Sydney, now we've got one in three in the medium or high-density housing. And if we look at new housing approvals in Sydney, we move from one in three to two in three. Of all new constructions in this city are in the townhouse or apartment category. In other words, people are renting more, they're, uh, they're living in more densified accommodation. We know that the average renter in Australia stays 1.8 years. That's a lot of moving. There's a lot of new communities they're moving across. And even those that have bought a home now are staying on average just seven years. And so people are looking for community. If we don't know our neighbours as well, where are we getting that from? If we only stay three years on average per job, which is the current average, where are we getting that connection from? We surveyed Australians recently asking them, what's the hub of community for you? And for 4%, it's joining the local PCYC or CWA, etc. For 5%, it's the local church. So people, as a mainstream society, aren't connecting through these institutions that much. For those who've got primary age children, the local school is there, but that's only 6% of the nation. For 11%, it's a local community centre. For 16%, it's a community park and sports ground. 19%, it's local pub or club. That's the expression of community for them. And for a whopping 39%, it's the local shopping centre is where they feel that they can connect and meet up. And so we've seen a rise in the, in the return of the urban shopping strip. But it's just a reminder that people are looking for community and connection and we've got to be in the community to engage with the people rather than expect them to come to us. Sometimes that means not just putting a sign up saying, here's our church or here's what we're about, come to us, but, uh, but being the signs and engaging with our community. I saw a sign that um, might have been relevant in the past that, just shows how signs change and they're not relevant. It's a sign they've had in the US around lakes and rivers for some time and, um, and it, 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 it had a figure. Uh, uh, it says there, if you see someone drowning, that in the middle, that's supposed to be a stick figure of someone with their arms raised, but um, it just looks a lot like lol and to laugh out loud, that's not the right response. So the point is that signs aren't great. We're not in a sign era anymore. Put a sign up, people will come. Put a sign up, people will respond. It's about being that sign and being relevant in how we go. So what do we do? Do we just sort of live our Christian life in our Christian holy huddle and have a great time and uh, try to avoid getting entangled in issues and uh, wait for the Lord to return? You know, the prophet Jeremiah was given a word from God as to what God's people should do when they were for 70 years living in exile in Babylon. And they were thinking, well, maybe we should just create our own little godly community and just bunker down amongst these pagans, these people of Babylon, and, and live our life. And, and, and God said through Jeremiah, no, no, that's not the way you're to live. You're, you're here for, for a long time, and you're, you're, you're different to these people, but you've got to connect and engage. And this was the instruction that God gave through Jeremiah. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." From cover to cover of God's word, we see that God wants his people to be invested in their communities and connect and engage and make a difference and so transform their societies. 
not by isolating themselves from it and doing it from the outside, but by connecting and engaging and shaping their society from the inside through service and connection and being part of the community. Speaking of wives and marrying and the like, as we saw the instructor, just living your normal life, in other words, was what Jeremiah was saying. But, but in, in our society, marriage has been pushed back from the early 20s to the early 30s. Having children has been pushed into the early 30s as well. And, you know, even if people weren't regular churchgoers, when there was a wedding on, they'd be at church. When there was a funeral, they'd be at church. If there was a little baby, they'd go for a dedication or, or a christening, traditional. But even that has changed in our society. Not only are people not turning up to church on a Sunday, they're not even coming when these issues of life take place. We know from the national data that 70% of all weddings now are conducted by civil celebrants. More than half, in fact, 58% of all funerals are now conducted by civil celebrants and you have to go all the way back to 1998 to find the last year where religious weddings were higher than civil weddings in Australia. In other words, the church is on the margins. People have moved on. It's not that the church has changed to turn people off. It's that, in a sense, society has changed. In the 1950s, where the church stood was pretty much where society stood. But what's happened since then, of course, is that society has moved. Now, we can wrap ourselves up in our unchangingness and say, well, we haven't moved and, and we're still you know, being faithful. And that's, that, that's great. But if it's about a lack of relevance in terms of style and engagement, then that's not a badge of honour. The church sometimes can be the only institution that sort of feels validation as fewer people join. Well, that really shows we're being faithful, you know. But, uh, but that's not the way to go. If there is a bigger gap between us and our society, then we have to work harder to bridge that gap. That's just the way it is. So let me move to some, some final, I guess, action steps for us here. We can't just rely on some past biblical knowledge in our community that people are going to connect. The average Australian has less knowledge of Christian things, even though they tick that box on the census form. We asked in a national survey this simple question, right? If the majority of people call themselves Christians in terms of their religion, well, what about Christ? In which century did he live? I and mean, this was a multi-choice option. And we got 42% of the national population with the correct answer. You had 28% who ticked the option, I have no idea. But I was particularly worried about the 27% of Australians who thought that Jesus lived in ancient times BC, which is before Christ. So uh, not sure what uh, was going on there. But... We can't rely on this biblical knowledge. When we ask Australians why they don't go to church, the top five reasons, the blockers that stop them attending a Christian community, being part of a Christian community, are negative perceptions about the church and what it stands for, the relevance of the church and the style and what's going, just the busyness, that there's other things to do with one's week. It's just not a priority for them and they don't know anyone there. And I guess we can worry and think, well, how do we... How do we answer the tricky questions or how do we uh, use apologetics to defend the historicity of the resurrection we can we can obsess about these things and for most people they're not the big issues they say well I don't know anyone or I just you guys what what Christians are on about I mean just can't see the relevance of it in my life I love the simple call that we have to discipleship to following Jesus and pointing the way to him in John chapter 1 it talks about John the Baptist's strategy. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John bore witness. He just pointed to Jesus. That's all John did. 
That was his whole mission. That's why he was so effective. He just pointed to Jesus. He didn't feel the need to argue it out in an apologetic sense. And we read, continue on in this passage, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So John points the way to Jesus. Others here start following Jesus, even brothers, and we, we know Andrew and grabs his brother Simon and says, Hey, come and meet Jesus. And they're just one by one introducing people to Jesus. It's simple and straightforward stuff. And it continues. The next day, now we're like three days straight here. Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So they're just following on. Philip meets Jesus, tells Nathanael about Jesus. Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like That doesn't seem right. And what's Philip's response? Come and see. I'm not going to argue that, just come along and see. Just point the way to Jesus, following Jesus, bring others to come and follow him as well. That's what it is all about. People are naturally going to start responding spiritually until we have a conversation with them. We surveyed Australians and asked them, what are the priorities of life? And in order, the seven areas, the ontology of life, if you like, was summarized by these areas. And in the the, the number one, the emotional area of life, for 68%, they said it's massive or significant priority. You know, mental health and keeping well and balanced and relational, financial, physical, vocational, social and spiritual. The least of the seven priorities was the spiritual. Only 30% of Australians said it's, uh, to some extent, a priority. And then we asked Australians, okay, if they're your priorities, how full are each of those glasses of your life? How full up are they and how much yet to go before you're fulfilled in those areas? And emotional. You know, like I'm going okay, but I could get a bit of better work-life balance perhaps. Relationally going okay, there's a bit of improvement maybe. Financially, yep, need to save more and earn more and that sort of thing. Physical going okay, should exercise more and eat a bit better perhaps. Vocational people saying I don't want to work any harder, I've got that about right. Social people saying you know, I'm busy enough now, keeping up with all the Facebook feeds and updating everything, that's, that's going pretty well. And spiritual was the biggest overflow of all. It's the lowest priority and it's the most fulfilled. It's a small little thimble, and they read a motivational quote, I heard some little um, uh, motivational slogan, and that's filled them up for a week. And so if we just stand in that spiritual dispensary, people will say, you know what, I've already got answers there. We just have to be those witnesses. Jesus said, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth it's about being witnesses and pointing the way to him we don't have to get all intense we don't have to get all uh, um, uh, I guess struggling around the philosophical approaches and the apologetical approaches it's simply pointing the way to him I put down Maslow's hierarchy because you know it used to be that we'd bring people through a a pathway of decision by well what about these areas of life and these areas of life and bring people through and I even thought that needs updating because there's something far more fundamental even than survival and security now I saw it updated recently with <laughs> wi-fi but the point is that we live in an amazing place at an amazing time with amazing opportunities and warm terrain in which we get the chance to be community live in the community and point the way to Jesus it was a few millennia ago that Queen Esther 
was wavering as to what she should do for God, step out for God's people. She was unsure what she could do. And her wise cousin Mordecai said, you know what, Esther, for such a time as this, you have been given this time, this place, and this responsibility. I think that's true for us. For such a time as this, for such a place as this, and for such an opportunity as this, let us be those simple witnesses living in the community, pointing the way to Christ, that we might transform this area of Sydney, Sydney as a whole, and from there, our nation, and may God bless us as we do it. Let me um, move us into a time of communion and, uh, and let us pray for that because you can't point the way to Jesus unless you love Jesus and you can't truly love Jesus unless you've been transformed by him and his saving death. We're going to remember that now in this time of communion and maybe in a moment I'll pray and you just come up and Grab a bit of the wafer representing the body of Jesus, the Lamb of God broken for us. The, the, the juice there representing the blood of Jesus that flowed his death on our behalf. It should have been us dying for our own sins, yet the sinless one died that we could be saved. And he rose again, defeating death. And in him we have eternal life, death defeated for us too. So if that's been your experience and you want to remember and worship Jesus and thank him for his sacrificial death and the life and forgiveness that it gives, then uh, let us pray and just uh, make your way up when you've examined your hearts and take part in the, the Lord's Supper. Almighty God, we thank you that in a world of shifting sand, you are our rock, the same yesterday and today and forever. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the saving one, And you saved then and you save now and you'll save into the future. We thank you that you are still interceding for us by the right hand of the Heavenly Father. And those sins that we do and the mistakes we made, Lord, they've been covered by your death on the cross. And there you are as our high priest making the way for us. We thank you for it. We remember that death now as we come to take of this bread, a symbol of your body broken, this cup, a symbol of your blood shed for us. We thank you for it, we remember it now, and we give you all of the praise for it. Amen.